Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. Please make sure your seatbelt is securely fastened, your tray table is in an upright and locked position, and that you are ready to get weird and think different. Please prepare for takeoff. Today is Wednesday. It is October 13th. We're back with another episode of Destination Different. We are on to the next century of the Destination Different podcast. Last week, as you might know, we celebrated 100 episodes of this thing. Two years, a little over two years in the books, 100 episodes. And this is, this is the new start. This is episode one of season two, if anybody tuned in for a hundred episodes season, they'd be absolutely insane. But excited to get this thing rolling, to keep this thing rolling, and to push the podcast to hopefully bigger and better things in the next hundred episodes. I am super, super, super excited about the guests that we have on this week's show. I've been saying since I started this podcast, I want. Destination Different to be a place that brings together the funniest, the strangest, the most interesting, the most talented creatives and entrepreneurs from all over the world. That is what I want this show to be. That's what I think this can be is this massive community of creative, interesting, weird people. And the only way that you can do that is that I have to I got to branch out, I got to keep my eyes peeled for who are the funny people, who are the interesting people, who are the smart people and try and convince them to come onto this show. And this week, I think, is a perfect example of just that. So our guest on this week's show is none other than Rob Christensen. He is a stand-up comedian. He is a writer. He is a graffiti artist. And I found him through a tweet that he posted. I said, huh, this guy's interesting. Went down the rabbit hole, watched some of his YouTube videos, watched some of his stand-up watch some of his sketches on Instagram. Next thing you know, I'm sending him a message. Hey, I'd love to talk to you on this show. Here we are a few weeks later, and he's on the podcast. That is what, in a nutshell, I want Destination Different to be, is this place that creatives can come and talk about their creative process. And so we did exactly that on this week's show. Rob is a new staff writer on, oh, I don't know, a little... Little show with a guy named John Stewart. John Stewart has a new show called The Problem with John Stewart. And Rob is a writer on that show. He is also a full time stand up comedian and a damn good one at that. So we talked all about how he's grown up into comedy writing, how he hones his creative craft and his process, and how he is just in this constant pursuit of perfection and landing a one hour of pure comedy, and that is his one singular focus in life. And he also happens to have a pretty cool side gig working on Jon Stewart's new show. So I'm super, super excited to introduce you to Rob Christensen on this week's episode of Destination Different. Let's go. person from New York about their favorite bagel shop or their favorite pizza shop, they're just always going to tell you the one in the neighborhood they grew up in. Mm-hmm. You know? So it's just like Bagel Boy on 3rd Avenue in Bay Ridge or Diker Bagels on 86th Street in, like, in Diker Heights. Th- those are the bagel stores. But no, just so you know, if you ever ask anyone from New York, if they're just going to say the neighborhood that the, the, the bagel it's the one, the one closest to. to them. Okay. That doesn't mean it's the best bagel store. It's just the one they, the bagels they ate when they were kids. So that's why they love them. It is, it is their spots. So are you back in New York now? Yeah, I'm in New Full York. Time. Okay. Um, so I, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, you've kind of lived this, this wild, you know, wildlife. You grew up in, grew up in Brooklyn. Uh, you know, we're in the U.S. Uh, Air Force, I believe. Yeah, um, And so, so tell me a little bit, like, how did you get into the, the kind of comedy creative space? Like, what set off that journey for you? Were you always like that as a kid, like a creative kid? Or like, how did you sort of get into this, you know, creative world? 
Yeah, I was, I guess I always uh, was like headed in that direction. Like I had an inclination to do art mm-hmm. and, uh, but it wasn't necessarily available to me as a kid, but mm-hmm. then I, I started writing graffiti. So that was like the first time I got into any artistic space and I wrote graffiti for all my childhood. And then when I was in college, I got bored because I was in the central coast of California and there was nothing to do. And I saw an improv team and I was like, hey, I could do that. And then I went and auditioned and I got on the team. And so it was not like on purpose that I did comedy. It was just sort of like something to do because I got a lot of free time. Mm -hmm. And as you were growing up, because I'm interested in the the graffiti piece, like, you know, were you adding humorous elements to that or was it sort of just like your artistic, you know, that that was sort of your, your thing at the time was just, you know, your taking your art style and putting it on walls yeah. or billboards or whatever. I didn't add anything funny to it on purpose. You know, I think East coast people are funnier than like Midwest or, or West mm-hmm. coast people. It's just like a little more sarcastic. People are a little sharper, you know, people like to crack jokes out here. And so like, that's just sort of built into the culture. So when I started doing comedy, I just had that. I didn't have to learn that part, whether it's like the, uh, like the rhythms, you know, the rhythms of comedy, like the muscle memory, I kind of already knew that part. And so then you just have to be like, all right, now I just got to figure out what the material is. Yeah. Okay. And do you still, do you still do graffiti now? Are you still like into the visual arts at all? Uh, I don't do it anymore. No, because I'm too old to go spend the night in jail. I got to be at work the next day. I got too many responsibilities now, but I think about it all the time all the time. And I, I wish I could still do it, but it's just, it's a young man's game. Fair, fair. You, do you like, you know, any, any painting or do you any, any sort of stuff outside of your, your writing day to day or just don't have, don't have the time or brain space for it? I mean, with graffiti, it's sort of the thing where it's like, it's like, it's like a whole lifestyle. It's like a culture. So I don't write graffiti because I don't have the time to give it the attention that it deserves. Like, you don't want to be a halfway crook, as Mob Deep would say, you know? So I, I decided I'm going to totally put that down, and I'm just going to do comedy because I don't want to serve two masters. And I don't want to do two things halfway. I want to do one thing all the way. But okay. I did do a ton of sketch comedy based in the graffiti world. So check out Three Letter Crew on Instagram or YouTube. And I, I did like 80 sketch comedy videos all about graffiti. Yes, I, I did want to talk to you a little bit about the Three Letter Crew. You guys have been doing that for, for years now at this point. You know, was yeah. that sort of your, you mentioned you did you know, improv in college and that's how you kind of first got into it. But was that sort of your first real thing of like writing sketches was, was with the Three Letter Crew? Uh, you know, I always did sketch stuff like sketch and improv are like the same world, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, I, I did like. I went through all the different schools, UCB, Second City, Improv Olympic. I did all that stuff. And then when, when I did Three Letter Crew, it's just because I was good friends with two graffiti writers in Los Angeles. And uh, they were more reliable to work with than any comedians that I knew. So I was like, fuck it, let's do some graffiti sketch comedy. And it, it worked out because we ended up getting like, like 80 videos done in two years. And I don't, and, and it was because these two dudes were so reliable. Like, I just, I don't want to diss comedians, but they're a little flakier, a little more like, what are my lines? What do I get out of this? But, but we just treated it like a job. And me and these other two dudes just started banging out sketches. And that's how we were able to get it done. Okay. I like that. And, and I'm curious, cause you, you, you know, you mentioned, obviously you didn't want to be in between two worlds of doing graffiti and doing comedy. And now you're in a place where you're, writing for a show and then I, I i don't know are you still working on like your stand-up act are you still doing yeah. kind of like stand-up on the side like how are you sort of balancing those two worlds yeah i do as much stand-up as i can you know sometimes i just i'll get out of work go do a set you know uh as much as possible yeah i'm not stopping that i'm definitely gonna have like a new hour done hopefully in like six months okay and talk to me a little bit about the process of writing uh, stand-up set of, of getting to writing that hour. Like, what does it look like to get you there? You said, you know, six months, you think you'll have it in a good spot. Like how, how do you even, how does somebody even start writing a, a stand-up set? Yeah. I, I don't know about it. I can only say how I do it. Yeah. And, uh, it's for me, it'll start with like something that I know for sure is funny. I'll have a thought 
I'll find some absurdity in the world or I'll have some wordplay or a lot of times I'll be thinking about one topic so much, you know, and I'll have something that I know for sure is funny. And then I'll take that on stage and it's like, I know I'm going to get a laugh. Mm -hmm. And so I'll start there. Now I'm getting a laugh with this thing. And uh, when I get the laugh, I feel secure. So like, you got to like come up with new jokes, but you don't know if they're going to work. So the way I do it is I get a laugh. So I've earned a chance to fuck up, right? So I'll get a laugh and try something new. If I get another laugh, I've earned another chance to fuck up. And I keep trying new shit till I don't get a laugh. Then I got to do something I know will work. And that's how I do it. And I, it's almost like every time I do a set, I could, like I could change just one word. And it's just the smallest incremental change. And I go over time and I just have to do set after set after set, add something if it works, or sometimes something will be working and then it'll stop working. I got to figure out why is it because I'm doing the rhythm wrong? Is it because I'm not doing the right voice inflection? Is it in the wrong spot in the set? And then it's just all those things. They just keep going, keep doing sets, keep doing sets. And then after you do enough sets, all of a sudden you're just smashing, you're smashing. It's working, it's working, it's working. And then when, when you're smashing, and you look up and an hour's, an hour's gone by. Well, then there you go. You have an hour because you just, it's all, there's no bombing. It's all smashing all the way through. And so that's how, that's how you get to your, so you're, are you somebody who's sort of, are you improvising on, on stage of like, all right, yeah. I know I've got to laugh and yes. now I'm like, all right, I'm going to feel this out, see how this works. And you're sort of writing your set in a sense, like night after night after night. Yeah. I'm doing, I'm doing both. I'm doing like uh I have jokes that are done, as done as they could be, but these jokes work. And the, those jokes that work will be in key places throughout my set. So I'll never go that long. It, say I go on a run that's not working, I'll always go back to a joke that works to get them back. I'll always start on a joke that works because I want to gain the trust of the audience. So you come out uh, and I'll come out with like stage presence, the rhythm's right, the voice is right, the movement's right. And, and, I'm, and uh, the first five minutes works. So I've earned their respect. They trust me. Yep. So if I, when I start to improv and when I start to do new shit, if it's not working, they give me the benefit of the doubt. But if you come out and you're just not doing well up top, they don't trust you anymore. People stop paying attention. What the fuck is this guy talking about? They start to order drinks. Someone goes to the bathroom. It's like you really need to get them. And so that, I just think of like jokes that work are like buying me time for jokes that don't work. Okay. And, uh, and, and then now I'm adding another layer where I'm trying to like do an hour on like one topic. Mm -hmm. So now just working under one umbrella and it just, it makes it a lot harder, you know, but, and you, and you don't have to do stand up that way. I just think of it more as like a performance piece where I'm not really into stand up, no matter how funny the person is, if the person is just like up there saying their jokes, and it's not a performance. That's not what I like. That's fine. Right. And people can like that. That's not, I want it to be a performance. I want it to be not only are the jokes good, but like there's a stage presence. And so yeah. Do you have, do you, do you add some element of like physical comedy into your bits as well? It seems like. Yeah. Like some of the stuff that I've watched, you definitely do. Like, you know, how do you think about like adding that physical piece to it? Yeah. Only if it complements. So it starts with a good joke. Set up punchline starts there. Set up punchline tag. And then if something, if there's an action that can enhance that or to make it funnier or to keep you paying attention to me, then I'll do that. I would never start with the, I would never start with the physical comedy part. It always comes later after the joke is solid. But yeah, absolutely. All the movements, like the goal, and I don't even know if it's achievable, but the goal is like the hour, every movement, every voice inflection, the rhythm, every single word has been planned. That just takes so many steps. You have to just do so much stand up to get there. Yeah. But that's just like, I mean, I love a hard goal. So if it was easy to do, I wouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. I, I can, I'm only into doing things that are super hard like that. And that, is that why you're doing, you want to do an hour on one topic? Cause that's like, yes. you know, the next thing yes. to really challenge you. Yeah. I think rules for me, rules help me be better, even in art. And I put, I, I invent rules. I invent rules everywhere in my life. Like I try to only wear clothes made in America, right? This is not some populist, wild, conservative thing why I want to do it. There is an aspect of like, 
if we produce stuff here in America, it's good for America. Yeah, that's that. But almost more than that, I want to reduce the, uh, the choices, the options available to me. So if mm -hmm. I can only buy clothing that's made in America, I have less options. I spend less time choosing and I have more brain freed up for other things. Where did this start? What was the question? I, now, I, I, that, I was, I was kind of, you, you were talking about, you know, challenging yourself yes, to like, rules. You know, yes, rules. So with standup, uh, if you could just go, if it's just blue sky and you could talk about anything, maybe you will find jokes on a wider range. Maybe you find jokes that you wouldn't normally have thought of, but then when you put it together, what does your set look like? Is it just like, I'm talking about 10 different topics that have nothing to do with each other. And then that's it. It's over with. And then you just have told jokes. But so I said, I said, like, I'm not going to do jokes about sex. Right. Mm -hmm. And when I was a younger comic, maybe I didn't. At some point I said, I'm not going to do that. It was because I saw so many people doing jokes about sex because you could get laughs when the audience is feeling embarrassed or shocked. Mm -hmm. You could get laughs from that. But I don't want embarrassed or shocked laughs. I want like honest surprise. One part of it is surprise, and the other part of it is insight. So if you're being insightful and, and saying something to the audience they maybe never thought of, and it's a surprise, that's the laugh I want. I think that's a really earned laugh. So I said, no sex. I don't talk about sex. I don't talk about dating. And there's a bunch of things I don't talk about on mm -hmm. purpose. And I just, I've invented those rules for my set. And now those rules made me a better comic. You know, like now I have to talk about things more important right and i don't yeah. want to say anything's not important but to me i'll talk about they or or like i don't talk about identity as much as possible mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying so now you have to talk about things outside of you and then that's where you could find insights about the world so you could go up and smash about like i'm white i'm black i'm gay i'm latino whatever it is but if you took that out of your set you'd have to talk about something else. And then you'd be like, well, now I have to talk about this issue being involved with being whatever my identity is. Mm -hmm. The identity is not the goal. It's the issues with the identity. And that's actually what people want to know about. And that's actually where your point of view comes from. And then that's, that's cool. I like that. Do you have, do you have certain things? Like, obviously I, I think, you know, comedy is one of the most powerful tools to sort of talk about like things that are hard to talk about. Like how, how do you think about that when you're building sets? Are there issues or topics or things that you're like, you know, very passionate about that you've found ways to work into your, into your set? I wouldn't say I found ways to work them in because I wouldn't talk about anything I wasn't in some way passionate about. Mm -hmm. So that's the, that's kind of like the only stuff I talk about. Yeah. If you're being honest with yourself, you, you'd only talk about the things you're passionate about. So you'd have to find ways to work stuff into the set that you're not passionate about. And then that's when your set becomes disjointed where you're mm -hmm. like, oh, well, I, this has nothing to do with me, but I have a great joke about toasters, which is fine. That's fine, but it's not how I do it. If my set's not about fucking breakfast, I'm not gonna have a toaster joke, no matter how good my fucking toaster joke is. If I have a great toaster joke, I'll fucking write it down. And when I'm done talking about whatever I'm talking about, I'll start talking about breakfast the next time. Yeah, okay. This is maybe a silly question, but when you're building out a set, are you literally word for word, you know, in a computer or on a piece of paper, like writing out, yeah. here's my whole thing. Or are you sort of, it's yeah. more of here are the marks I need to hit at a course of an hour or 30 minutes or whatever your set is. And that's more I, the way you do it. I rarely write. Okay. I rarely sit down and write. Interesting. What I do I, at most it's bullet points. Mm -hmm. And because of the way, since I'm changing something, every time I go up, I, there's no reason to write down the words. Right. Because the, the change could be as small as one word is going to go here. I'm going to add an adjective here and that maybe fixes the joke. So it's always bullet points and I just have the set memorized. Mm -hmm. and, and it's like it's it's like the Jay-Z shit, but not as cool because yeah. the only reason I have the set memorized is because it's all I'm thinking about. Like my free time is spent thinking about that, trying mm -hmm. to improve it. So it's more of an obsession thing. Okay. That's, that's fascinating. And do you find the same thing is true now writing for a show that you're not necessarily writing stuff out? No. It, it's like, how writing does that, how does that TV work? Show, I'm writing shit out all okay. fucking day. Yeah. Yeah. It's a totally different thing than stand up. Mm -hmm. It's like, cause you'll be like, 
assigned whatever you'll pitch and then if your pitch gets picked up you have to go write it out it's it's like it's like a different part of the brain it's like it's it's like more manifesting it's like a with a deadline you have a deadline and you have to manifest that something that's funny so it's just a different thing where stand-up is just there's no deadline you're just doing whatever you want it's completely personal right it's just you and you're sort of reworking that over and over there's no like okay the show comes out on this day you gotta you can you know you need to figure it out by this point yeah interesting okay um i want to stay on the stand-up piece just for one one other thing like are there any you know, I, I talked to a lot of people that are early in their career, kind of just getting up and running. Like as you were sort of starting stand up, how, how did you think about like getting on those stage those early times? And like, what was that experience like for you of kind of like cracking into the industry of you know getting into the comedy space? It's so competitive. It's so much like a, you know, do it over and over and over again and meeting the right people and getting in the right places. Like how, how, how was that for you in the, in the early days? Uh, it was hard in the early days, and it's still hard now. I like I'm not nervous to get on stage, but it's it's really hard to get sets. And so in the beginning, I'm just doing open mics, go out, do open mics. They suck. They suck. They take all your time. You, you get five, three minutes. Sometimes you got to spend money on it. No one's gonna laugh, but you just have to do that. And now it, I, I don't. I, I can't do open mics anymore. But now I'm just trying to book shows, and I'm still sending emails every week, just trying to get stage time. And I wouldn't say it has got easier. And uh, I just have to work the same amount as hard from, from the beginning till now. It never mm-hmm. ends. So if you think it's going to get easier at some point, don't even start. It's, it's going to be hard work. You think being a comedian that that life uh, is like, oh, it's a fun life, which it is, but it's still work. I've worked harder being a comedian than I did at any job I ever had with a steady paycheck. Okay. And I'm, again, I'm curious to, you know, the, the money side, the financial piece of being a comedian, like it's not necessarily like a steady, you know, nine to five type of job. How has that been on you of sort of like hustling for, you know, okay, I got to get this set cause it's going to pay a couple hundred bucks. I got to get this, yeah. you know, steady gig. Like how, do, how have you thought about it from a financial perspective? And like, what is that side of things like? I put no financial burden on comedy. Okay. None at all. And I never have. It, it, it's something that I was going to work that hard on no matter how much money I made. And I'm, I'm willing to lose money. That being said, you have to have money to live. And I just, have been lucky and good at hustling up some money, finding jobs, you know, I'm a generally competent person. So I'm, I'm able to get money, you know? Right. And, but with comedy, even right before I got this job uh, with Jon Stewart, I would lose money. I would take, I'll take a show that pays, that won't pay more than the tolls and gas to get there. It doesn't matter to me. It doesn't matter because like I've noticed with comedians, who start to put the pressure on how much money I'm making. I don't like where that leads because it's, it's more like you're paying attention to the financial side than you're Mm -hmm. paying attention to being a great comic. And although I do want to be financially stable, like the rest of the world, I want to be a great comic. And at one point I just decided I want to be a great comic at all costs. And I'm still that way. So if I'm broke, but I'm a great comic, I will find happiness. Yeah. And I, I don't know if other people can do it a different way than that, but that's the only way it could work for me. So it's like, that's kind of like the real artsy part of it is that like the art comes first. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I go and I'm figuring doing a whole set and only changing one word to see if it works, I'm doing that because I just love getting it right. And if I was worried about the money I was making, that's a part of my brain that's not focused on getting it right and being great. And that I'm not willing to give up anything to not be great i want to be great at stand-up i don't care about the financial part yeah here's the catch if you get good enough at stand-up the money's that takes care of itself yeah yeah i that it it makes sense it's like you're you're so and it's consistent with what i've heard from a lot of other artists is like if you are dead focused on being great at your craft the money will come eventually it's a patience thing but it like everybody that i've spoken to kind of says the same the same thing which is cool um, how, how did you sort of, you know, was it in te- maybe back up a little bit, do you have an agent or manager or anybody that's kind of helping you 
facilitate these opportunities or are you totally just like, boom, I, I'm hustling, I'm emailing people like it is, it is all you? Uh, I have a manager and I have a lawyer, no agent, and they're, they're great. I love them and they work hard for me. But no matter how hard they work, it will never reduce the amount of emails I send or the amount of work that I do. There's no uh, getting an agent will add to people working for you, but it will never reduce the amount of work you have to do. Mm -hmm. You will work hard from day one until the day you fucking die if you want to be an artist. And that's why you have to love the art part of it, because the work never gets less. It stays consistently hard. It will yeah. be the hardest you ever did until you fucking die. It will never get easier. The agents and managers will just double the workload or add a, add a percentage to the work that gets done for you. Yeah. I don't, I'm kind of introverted person, and I don't like to go out and shake hands. I don't like to have general meetings and stuff like that. So they will send, they'll add a buffer to that. Yeah. And that, that's really what they do for me. They protect you from some of that, like, you know, more yeah. frivolous stuff that you don't necessarily like to do. And, and I'll say back when I was like uh, in 2014 is when I first kind of got good at comedy and I started to get some TV credits and stuff like that. And I got an agent at a well-known agency. I got a manager at a well-known management place and they did fucking nothing. And I had to learn the lesson the hard way that, cause I kind of like, all right, well, now I have these people, the shit will start coming my way. And it didn't, it didn't. And, and, and when I slacked off a little on my own, things stopped. And, then, and that's when I realized it doesn't really matter who reps you, you have to keep working that hard. Yeah. And then, so, and I even tried to, one time I tried to fire this manager at a big management firm. And she was like, I was saying, you know, this is not really working out. I don't think I'm even like a big enough comic for you to rep me yet. I got to do some more shit on my own. And the manager talked me out of firing them and was like, no, 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 no. We love you. you let's do this. Let's keep going. We're going to make something happen. Hang up the phone. Three days later, she calls me back and drops me. <laughs> so not only was I just on a comic on the roster, like I wasn't a human being. Right. To the point where, no, no, you can't fire me. I fire you. Yeah. Oh, that's brutal. Yeah. It's, it is all like, I even noticed it with the podcast. Like it is always going to be, it's my baby. It's my thing. It's never like whether I had somebody helping me out or not, it's going to be me sending DMs, sending emails, send it like that is the, it's always going to be your, your show. And, um, and the manager I have now is not like that. And that, and that's why I'm going to stay with the manager I have now, no matter how powerful the manager is, it doesn't matter. It only matters if they actually care about you. So I'm happy with my manager because I trust my manager. Yeah. And I have no other factor involved. I don't care who your best friend in the industry is, what company you work for, how powerful you are. Do I trust you? Yes. Done. That's it. Because you'll get more. You'll get more with someone who actually gives a fuck mm -hmm. than a very powerful person who doesn't give a fuck. That's awesome. How did you think about taking this job on Jon Stewart? Was, you know, how you've done some TV credits before you've had, you know, have writing roles on shows, but you know, this is like a full-time staff gig. Like how, yeah. how did you sort of get into this world of, of TV? So I, the pandemic happened and it killed stand up, and that's what afforded me the time to focus on getting this job, but it was just a writing submission and anyone could have done it. It was wide open and 2,400 writers submitted to it. But uh, because I had the time, I couldn't do stand-up, I could really focus on it. And I actually worked really hard on it. I got, and I got the job. Obviously, mm -hmm. I'm skipping the middle parts. There's yeah. many, many parts of the submission. You had to keep working hard. Like I said, you had to keep working hard. It never let up. You had to do interviews and everything. But I got the job. And, uh, and, it's, and of course, I'm taking it. There's no way I'm not taking it. And, it had, and so far, it's been a dream job. Like, yeah. It's like... What is the saying about luck where it's like hard work, preparation, yes. timing or something like that, whatever it is. It's a cliche, but it's true because it's really fucking lucky that I have this job, but I've been working very fucking hard for 15 years to get this job. Mm -hmm. So my dues are paid. Like I have the confidence to know that I, that since I put in all the work and I paid all the dues, I belong. I don't have like the imposter syndrome. I know I belong here because I've been, I love comedy so much and I've been working this hard that I, I, I belong where I'm at. Yeah. What, what does a, 
writing submission look like for a show with John Stewart? Like how, how what are you being asked to come up with? Are, how, how was that like application <laughs> process for you? I actually don't know how much I'm allowed to say about okay. that, like yeah. in details, uh, because I did sign the NDA. Mm-hmm. And, but I, I can say that 2,400 people submitted to the first round. So the first round, the details were pretty public. And that one, you just had to write 10 jokes. And, uh, and, it's, and they read all 2,400 packets. It was truly blind and truly egalitarian. And I think that's the only way I would have ever got a writing submission is if I was purely only being judged on, on the writing. Mm-hmm. And the, the way it happened for me is that, you know, I think I wrote 10 good jokes and maybe I did, but I know that one of the jokes I wrote really, really made the head writer laugh. Mm-hmm. And so she read 2,400 packets. So if you wrote a joke that made her laugh out loud, you're going around too. It was that simple. It was like, make me laugh out loud. And, I'm, and I know the joke and I know why it worked. And part of that is luck because I was writing about a topic that I'm passionate about and the head writer was passionate about. And that one joke got me to round two. Round two, it was like less. It was like under 50 people made it to round two. Mm-hmm. And then I love my odds. I love my odds because I think they hired eight or nine people out of like 50 from round two. I get 50 comics together and I love my odds to be in the top eight. You know what I mean? Like I, I and, and competitive to, guy. Yeah. You were like, I can, sure, I can do sure this. It's yeah. Competitive, but it's like, I, I, I love, I love this so much and I work so hard that I don't, even in the, even if you narrow it down to 50, I think I can, I'll make top eight mm-hmm. just because I, I just, that's my work ethic toward it. That's awesome. Well, congratulations. It is like, it is pretty unbelievable. Um, what is it like? I'm sure a lot of people would be curious of what a, what a writer's room looks like on a you know big time Apple TV show. Like what is, what is the process like? You know, what, what is kind of the operational setup to it? You know, you the show I think comes out what every other week every is the way that week. it's set yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess how long have you been like working on it in prep for it to now launch? And then what does it look like now as the show is up and running? So we, we've been working since April, the first week of April is when we first started. And, uh, a lot of that was just like getting a show up and running. The show had never existed before. So we're not just the new hires, we're the first hires. So you put in, you get all the processes together, figure, we're figuring out what the show is gonna look like, what it's gonna sound like. So there's a lot of time in the beginning before the first taping of figuring that out. And now the time is shrinking in between tapings because processes are getting more figured out. Uh, as far as like the other writers on the show are like the funniest, nicest people I ever worked with. And I think that's because it was an egalitarian process. No one's a cousin, no one's father, no one went to Harvard. No mm-hmm. one's in here for any special reason other than how funny they are. So every writer is different than me and different than each other and just so funny. And so all day I work with people who just fucking crack me up all day long. And so if you start there, the, work, the job's a dream because I'm laughing most of the day. Mm-hmm. So I gotta, and then, you know, I've never had this before, but like Friday will come and you're not like trying to run out the door, especially if you're working on something that you're into because you want it to be perfect. That's just how, you know, the whole work ethic thing, you want it to be perfect. Yeah. So then Friday you have to leave and you're still thinking about that thing because it's what you love to do. And then when Monday's come and you're like excited to go to work again, to finish or to get the new thing, we're about to start working on new topics. So it's like starting from ground zero again and it's exciting. And, uh, and again, it's like those cliches, like if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. They're silly, but you don't know how true they are until you fucking find out, you know? I had never worked a job where I was excited on Sunday night to go there on Monday. And I think, I, I think most people never feel that ever in their life. So just trying to like take a step back and look at it, I'm making sure that I appreciate this. I'm making sure that I feel grateful and happy because maybe this is the only time that I have this. So I'm just like making sure that I never get too bogged down in the details that I'm not enjoying it. And the truth is, if this show gets canceled and I don't have this job, I could never work in a writer's room again. And honestly, it's probably more likely that that that, that happens. Yeah. This could be the only one I'm ever in. So I'm gonna make sure that when I look back on this time in my life, I enjoyed it while it was happening. I don't wanna have good old days. I wanna have good now days. Mm-hmm. That's, that's amazing. And like, are you from a 
conceptual standpoint, are you getting briefed in like the, I, the format of the show is very much seemingly like each episode is kind of a different specific topic. Are, you know, does John Stewart or the head writer or whoever's coming to you and say, Hey, writer's room, we're talking about X. We need you to write a hundred jokes for this. Like what is sort of that operation like of, yeah. of getting to a, a full a, a 30 minute show? Like how, how do you build to that? This show is like 45 to an okay. hour, depending on the topic. So that's another weird thing about the show. The show will be as long as it needs to be for the art to be correct. Yeah. It will be as funny or serious as it needs to be for the art to be correct. If you see an episode that's less funny, we did it on purpose. If you see an episode that seems like it has a lot of fucking jokes, we did it on purpose. We start with the topic and we honestly serve the art. A lot of that has to do with, the, with having a very powerful boss. You know, John mm-hmm. Stewart has a lot of cachet in the industry. Yeah. And, and he's put enough years in that he does what the fuck he wants. Um, when it comes to, like, what topic we're working on, everyone's involved. This is I've never seen a healthier work environment than the one I'm in now. And when I say everyone's involved, when it's time to pick a topic for a new show, PAs, research, uh, footage, People, the casting department, talent producers, regular producers, writers, everyone can pitch an idea. Every department. Mm-hmm. So if we have an episode that started with a PA, that shit started with a PA. So it's so collaborative from step one that you're never surprised by a topic. Yeah. We've been working, like working what topic is going to be together, the whole fucking crew, the whole time. And then when it's time to figure out what jokes we're doing or what interstitials or something like that that's when the writers get to pitch so there's really no surprises on anything you see it coming because you invented it and and when you say pitch like you know that is hey i've got a great idea i know the first episode was like talking about veterans and it was you know okay i've got a great idea for a five minute sketch or bit or whatever on veterans here it is and if they like it then you kind of workshop it and build it from there yeah yeah and then usually the person who pitched it be like, all right, this, it's like, we get a bunch of pitches and then it'd be like, all right, these move into the, these we want, we think we want to do, it moves to the next round. Let's call it like a developmental round. Then the writer who pitched it will then start writing a first draft, working it out. And then we'll take, we narrow it down. Then we'll take those first drafts and figure out what's right for the show. And then something will get greenlit. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes something will get greenlit, but we can't get the right talent involved. And then it'll get killed. So, so many factors go into getting something actually on the screen. Right. And always it's to serve the topic. So we have a ton of great ideas and a ton of funny ideas. But if it's about dying veterans and we're interviewing a dude who's got a year left to live, who's talking about my kids are not going to grow up with a father. My wife's going to not have a husband because of the cancer I got from burn pits. Maybe you don't want to go with your very silly, very funny sketch mm-hmm. or monologue, you know? So the choices we make are always based on serving the topic we're talking about. Got it. How do you think about writing for yourself versus writing for another person? Obviously, you know, you have the stand-up background where everything is coming out of your mouth. It's coming from your voice and it's now got to rewire my brain and write this for John Stewart for X person who is being interviewed. Like, how do you think about bouncing back and forth that way? So the great thing about that, is that we didn't have to rewire our brains because the writers who were chosen, like I said, it's eight different styles. They were chosen for their different voices. So we always get to start in our own voice because What's the point of hiring a writer if it's not to include their voice in what you're doing? Mm -hmm. So everything starts in our voices. Me, I'm a little crazier. I hate the word edgy. I'm not trying to be an edgy comic, but just because of who I am and the lifestyle I live, things are a little, they have teeth, you know? Yeah. And so that's where it starts. And you get to write what your voice is. And as it goes through the process, it will slowly become John's voice. And John's involved with that because we'll do a read through. And we'll hear things come out of his mouth and it'll always be the funniest if it's coming out of his mouth in his voice. And so it kind of naturally gets molded into what he's going to say. And he also pitches his own jokes. Like John has a writer credit and writes jokes. Will he will write jokes. They will make it all the way to the end. He's involved in that process as well. 
That's cool. Were you, were you always a fan of Jon Stewart? You know, did you watch his work or was this something like, how has that relationship been of like, I assume at some point you consumed his content as like a fan or a viewer. And now like (laughs) anyone around my age range who watched Jon Stewart. Yeah. Yeah. So I watched, it's like, almost like rather than say I'm a fan, it was just, yeah, of course I'm a fan, but it was also just like a daily part of my life for the formative years of my life. It's almost different, you know? It's like, whatever, you have your kids show that that shaped the way you think, and then you have the Daily Show. If you're yeah. a certain age range, shape the way you think. So he's in the back of everyone's brain that's my age range. And so, and it's awesome working with him. And it's like, he has, I feel like he has great boundaries because some, you don't, like, it's very clear boundaries. It's a very good, positive working relationship. And I like that because I like rules. So I feel like there are rules on how we do things and that serves the art. Mm-hmm. That's like, I mean, it just, it's obviously it's just such a unique, like, especially now as he's, you know, kind of stepped away from a while after the daily show. And like, this is sort of his, his reemergence. Like it's a, it's a fascinating project. I imagine to, to get the chance to work on. Yeah. It's crazy. It's a crazy. This is maybe a, a difficult question to ask, you know, whether it's, on the show now or in your, your past life, you know, you've done some of these other you know, TV opportunities. Is, th- is there anybody that stands out that you work, that you've worked with that you're like, that is just the funniest person that I know. Like that is, that, <laughs> is there somebody that stands out that you're just like, holy shit, this person blows my mind. Every single joke they write is funny. Every single thing they do is funny. Does anybody like really jump out that way? So my brain don't really work that way. I don't necessarily pick favorites and catalog favorites. Uh, I also don't care what someone else's favorite, whatever the fuck is. Mm-hmm. I would say that like, there could be a very, very famous person who will, who will be so fucking funny and you could learn so much from and think, and you're watching their set and thinking, this is a master. This is amazing. I'm so lucky to see this on Saturday night. And then on Sunday night, you could go see an unknown comic who's new, who has so much potential and they're still a little rough, but they're so fucking funny. And you could sit there and think, holy shit, this is amazing. I'm so lucky to see this. So I don't want to rank and I don't want to catalog. I want to just be open to everything that's coming my way. I, res- I respect that. That's, that's cool. Do you feel the, I, I don't know. I don't know if pressure is the right word, but you know, I, I've talked to photographers and they're like, you know, you just get at some point, everybody's like, I, can you take my picture? Can you do this? Like, do you feel as a comedian, what, you know, getting labeled as a comedian that people are like, oh, he's the funny guy. He's going to be cracking jokes all the time. Like, how does that feel in your like real life of, of being you know, labeled as a comedian or being a, a funny, per, you know, funny for a living? Um, <clears throat> you know, it's not a factor in my life. Like I have real friends, whether they're comedians or not comedians, have good, real friends and healthy relationships with the people in my life that I am just myself with those people. And I'm not famous enough for people to be hitting me on the street and expecting to be a comedian. So I'm probably in the sweet spot right now where I'm just a normal person to the people I love and I'm unknown to the people I don't love. Is there... As, as you think about, you know, the, the trajectory of your career and where you want to take things next, I, I know you've mentioned like how much you're just really appreciating working on, you know, this show in this job in this environment right now. Do you think about, all right, my next thing, I want to have an hour long Netflix special, or I want to go and do a big tour. Like, are you thinking about those things from a future standpoint of like where you want to take your your career and your like, I would love to work on another show someday. Like, how are you thinking about where you take your, your writing next? Yeah. I'm thinking about all of that. Very fucking detailed. I know exactly what I want to do and I'm putting a plan in motion to achieve those things at all times. That will never stop. There's no, I don't dream because I take action. I don't have dreams. I have goals. So I know exactly what I want to do next. I know exactly the details of that and the companion portions to that 
And, then, and if that's successful, I'll know where I want to go next. And if it's not successful, I'll know how I'm going to rebound. At all times, I'm always thinking about that. Why? Because it's all art and I love the art. So what else did I fucking think about? There's literally nothing else to think about. It's like family and friends, are they good to go? Are my bills paid? Is anyone in need around me? If all that's handled, there's nothing left but art. That's all I want to think about. So to the very minute detail, I have all of it planned. Okay, so what, what are some of those? What are some of those details? <laughs> what, are, what are some of the things you're thinking about? You can't have it all, but for sure, this is an obvious one. I want an hour special. And then, so every set that I do, I'm working toward that goal. An hour special on a specific topic with a, with a like, not just jokes strung together, jokes strung together in the right order so that it's some form of a narrative. So it's not just a dude telling jokes, but it's an actual performance. It's a, it's a, a piece. Mm -hmm. Like how some, some artists will do an album and be like, this is an album. This is not just 10 songs together. This is, this album is meant to be listened to in this order. That's how I want to do my set. And so and right now, that's what I'm working on. Every single thing. And do I have a TV show idea that's a companion to that? Yes. Do I know exactly who I want to pitch first and what the pitch is going to be? Yes. All of it. I have all of it planned. But right at this point, it all hinges on my hour being fucking dope and smashing. Yeah. And, and to, to, to smash, you must be very honest with yourself. If a joke don't work, change it or lose it. And that's a mistake I see a lot of comedians doing. I've seen motherfuckers tell the same joke for five years that got mediocre laughs. If it's getting mediocre laughs, you have to change it till it's getting giant laughs or drop it. Because you want the goal, maybe even the unachievable goal, is to smash the whole fucking time mm -hmm. on different levels with all the act outs with all the voice intonations, with all everything, every aspect of it, including the overarching narrative. That's the goal, is that it's perfect. May not be achievable, but in the, I think in trying to achieve that, you'll be, you'll reach higher highs than you would have any other way. Yeah, you can't, can't be satisfied with, all right, I'm getting some chuckles out of this. Maybe the first part works, but the end doesn't work. Like right. it's, exactly. it's making as much of it perfect as yeah. humanly possible. Do you want, oh, I just want to say, I'm not beholden to or trying to impress anybody but myself. Mm -hmm. That these are my standards. I'm not trying to meet another person's standards. My standards are high and I want to meet my own standards. I think that's a very unique thing about stand-up too, is because it's not, like you're, you're not working for anybody else. It is your, it is what you decide is funny, what you want to put in there. Like it is totally you, which I find is, is very unique. I was going to ask, do you, do you watch like tape of yourself? Do you kind of like play back sets afterwards? Like, how do you think about that in your process of bettering things? I do. And not as much as I should. It's painful. It's so fucking painful. Uh, but I do think that it, is important. It's one of the best ways for you to get better is to watch yourself from the perspective of the audience. The reason that it's painful is because you will never watch something and not find a mistake, not find something embarrassing that you're doing. And so every time you watch or listen to yourself, you will be embarrassed. And those moments where you get embarrassed is what you got to work on. And that's why it's so effective because nothing is more fucking primitive than that feeling. But I never want to look like that again. So I must do better. I literally listened to last week's podcast episode and I wanted to like rip my ear, ears out because I just kept dropping little mm-hmms and yups that I was like, I didn't even know I was doing this. It's just like, but now you listen to it back. I'm like, oh shit, I actually do that yeah. a lot. And so I'm conscious of that as I'm now, you know, it's a, it is an interesting thing listening to it all back. Yeah. I was on the first podcast for the show that I'm working on and I started listening to it. And there was a, a, a section where I started going, you know, like, it's sort of like, like the thing with the like, I said, like, like 17 times in a row and turned it off. I was like, no, I can't listen to another second of it's this. It's torture. Yeah. How have you thought about the, the power of the internet, if you will, of, of, you know, building your brand, working on your comedy that way? It seems like, especially, you know, with the advent of TikTok and with t t the power of Twitter, like some of these places where 
you can share out a, a sketch or comedians are blowing up because they've got a funny character that they work on, you know, on a video, a 10 minute video show that they do online. Like, how have you thought about that as part of your creative process and building out your, your work? Well, there's a difference between the internet and social media. I think the internet for society likely has uh, more positives and negatives associated with it. Social media is a poison. It's a straight up poison. The negatives far outweigh the positives for us as a society. For people in the entertainment business, being able to get their, uh, being able to get their stuff out there, of course I support that. Anyone who can make it in any way in this business, I support you. It's fucking impossible. Do your thing and don't let anyone tell you different. But I think social media is a fucking poison. And I think that it's lowering the standards for comedy. And uh, it's a lot of fucking lip syncing. It's a lot of people copying each other's jokes. It's a lot of people just fucking shaking their ass at the certain point in a song. Mm -hmm. And I'm not against any of it. I think you should do it. When I see it, it makes me laugh, but it's trash. It makes, it's reality TV, it's watching cops, it's poison. And for stand-up in particular, I think that it's gonna overall lower the quality of stand-up in, in the world of comedy. Because some people in the beginning started putting stand-up clips online, finding a following, headlining clubs, the following grows, they're headlining theaters, they couldn't get a special on Comedy Central or HBO or Showtime, so they did it on their own. They're fucking dope. They're fucking genius for doing it. I'm so happy they have a career. And now everyone is copying them. So now, you, now there's an, uh, an onus on a comic to put up lots of clips of your stand-up. You have to always have new stand-up on social media to keep these followers that you think are your fans engaged. But every comic wants to sell their hour or their half hour or their 15 minutes on Netflix. So their best shit, they're keeping in their pocket. They're keeping off the internet because they need that because the executives who watch comedy enough can tell the difference, hopefully, between trash and good shit. Mm -hmm. So they're not giving you their best shit. So what are they doing? They're giving you their, their, their worst shit. And they have to make a lot more worse shit to keep up with the demand to keep posting on social media. Yeah. The people who are watching these clips may not know not a lot about stand-up. They likely don't know much about stand-up. And so they think stand-up comedy is a dude behind a piano making a pussy joke. But it's not. It's not even stand-up to the dude behind the piano making the pussy joke. It's just the stand-up he's willing to put on social media because he has to save his good shit for TV. So the quality will continue to get worse. The quantity will continue to increase and the quality will get worse. Have I put clips on? Yes, I tried to do it. I fucking hated it and it didn't work. I'm not good at social media. Mm -hmm. Thank God I'm not good at social media because if I was fed the likes, if I was fed the comments, I would be staring at my phone more and I would be, I'd be trying to get my perfect hour less. Mm -hmm. So I think, it's a, I, I think it's a poison. I think it's, it's raising mediocrity of creativity, but you don't have to participate but you do have to take the negatives that come with not participating. Yep. So while I'm out here doing sets, trying to come up with a perfect hour, I'm not building fans on the internet. And I don't give a fuck. I don't give one fuck because I will have a, 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 as close to perfect hour as I could get when it happens with no fucking deadline because it's the quality is the deadline. And then when I get that out, people will see it. And whether it's a hit or not, I don't give a fuck because when I die and people look back, I won't be a guy behind a piano doing a pussy joke. I will be a guy who did art honestly. And, and, and when you don't care about money and you don't care about fame and you only care about art, you'll make better art. But it'll be painful because you might not have fame and you might not have money. And mm -hmm. you gotta decide what's good for you. What do you think, like kind of build it on that a little bit. What do you think about sort of the future of entertainment i feel like we're moving to a place you know you're obviously working on like a scripted tv show now like that seems to be there's less i find there's less just comedy movies in general like people aren't making 90 minute comedy movies like they used to it's now you know 10 episode 15 whatever it is like how are you thinking about that and where sort of the medium of like comedy writing is trending 
you know, I don't, I don't know anything more about that than you know, or anyone yeah. else knows. Like we read fucking articles about it and we are part of it because we're consuming the stuff, how we consume it. But I don't have any insight on mm-hmm. that other than I don't give a fuck where it's going. It's, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to make the art that I want to make. If people are not making 90 minute comedy movies, but I write one, I'll fucking make it on my own because that's the art I want to put out because I don't care if I'm a billionaire and I don't care if I'm the most famous person on the planet. I care that I put this shit out and I only, I'll put it out and I'll do it for the people who like it. And that's it. I'm going to make stand up the way that I want to do it. And uh, if I was making stand up the way that I thought I'd be successful, I'd be being dishonest and it would never be that good. So I don't give a fuck where the entertainment business is going. It's, it's kind of easier to say that now that I have this job and I got a steady paycheck mm-hmm. and uh, I'm what you may call successful at the moment. But I promise you, before I had this job, when I was fucking broke and losing money, I still didn't give a fuck about where the industry was going. I did not give a fuck. Even when I was making sketches with Three Letter Crew, um, we were putting a lot of time and a lot of money into making these sketches and we weren't growing as fast as a meme account would or some people who were making, uh, who were putting less time into it where they were just shooting on their phone. We were hiring DPs, sound equipment. We were writing sketches over and over and over. And we were less successful than people who were putting in less effort, but we didn't give a fuck. We did not change because we were making sketches that we wanted to make. We wanted art that represented us. So we put in the effort regardless of results. And, and I will continue to, to do that. And I don't give a fuck what anyone else does. I like that. My last question for you, I end every show with the sign off of stay weird. So I've been asking everybody, what makes you weird? Ha! What makes me weird? Lauren, what makes me weird? <laughs> I don't believe in weird, man. I'm interesting. Fuck weird. Weird is a word that makes it okay to make fun of interesting people. So fuck weird. You're not weird. You're interesting. Be interesting. And when someone calls you weird, say, I'm not weird. You're just not interesting. is a wrap on this week's episode of destination different huge thank you to rob for coming on this week's show i always talk about you know the progression of the show where i want to take it how i want to keep growing this thing making it bigger and make it better part of the way that you do that is you keep finding and keep reaching out to interesting people on the internet I had found a tweet about Rob, went down the rabbit hole of who he was, what his career was like, watched some of his stand-up, sent him a message, hey, I'd love to chat. A few weeks later, we're hopping on the phone together, and now he's on the show. I think it's just a perfect representation of what the creative community is like, what, this, what I want this podcast to be. And so I'm so thankful that Rob took the time out of his Sunday to come and sit with me for an hour and talk about comedy, talk about writing, talk about his creative process. So I'll make sure we get Rob all linked up in the description. He is at Rob Loves Bagels all over social media, and you can catch him writing on The Problem with Jon Stewart. So again, huge thank you to Rob for coming on this week's show. And that is officially episode 101 in the books. We are off on the next century of Destination Different. What a way to start it out. I cannot wait to keep pushing on this show, seeing where we can take it next. We'll be back again next week, next Wednesday, another episode of Destination Different. Until then, I hope you stay weird. Just a couple hours I can't tell the
the difference between what's fake and what's been missing. Often I misunderstood, so I'm looking for a better me. This is your love song, baby. I hope that you know the words. This is your love song, baby. 